As we continue our study of Matthew's Gospel, today's scripture comes from Matthew chapter 20, the first 16 verses. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for a day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. And he told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. And he went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon. He did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. And he asked them, why have you been standing around here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. And he said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those who... So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said. And you've made them equal to us, who've borne the burden of work in the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who is hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. This is the word of the Lord. This morning as we explore this parable... I want us to consider two things. Firstly, the motivation of God, and secondly, the generosity of God. Parables are these poetic teachings, and we don't want to press them too tightly on every single detail, because parables generally have as many meanings as there are characters. And so we want to look at what is the main thought or theme in any of the parables that Jesus teaches. But in this one, so I thought we would consider two things, the motivation and generosity. So firstly, the motivation of God we see here, as Jesus is revealing what is the nature of his Father, is that he is compassion-driven. God's motivation is his harvest. Everything that God has done, the entire narrative of the Scriptures, from Genesis to Revelation, it is all about God's compassion For his beloved and fallen creation. It is all about the harvest. It is all about rescue and renewal and eventual restoration. I have a brother-in-law and he is a farmer in Saskatchewan. And he has a farm that is a size that is comical. It is comically huge. How much land the family has. Different brothers work it. His dad's still farming part of it. It's massive. And when it is harvest time, nothing else gets any focus. Because it is all about getting the harvest out of the field. It is the absolute focus of all of your time and your energy. It's all you think about is the harvest. The motivation of our Father, the love He has for His creation, for you and I, 
for the people of this world who desires to draw by his great grace. He's fixated on it. Notice how the landowner goes to the marketplace. It's, this is an image that everybody would have been familiar with. It, um, you know, if you didn't have work, you'd go to a specific place and landowners would come and they'd just hire you on the spot. And the denarius that's here, that's a day's wage. So this is all just and fair and appropriate. And everybody would have understood that. And, but what I want you to notice is that he goes there early in the morning. It's about 6 o'clock. And then he goes back at 9. He goes back at lunch. He goes back at 5. There is this continual desire to draw in the harvest. It's just an ongoing, gracious draw. And that's a significant image. Verse 6, from the landowner's point of view, he says, why are you standing around? From, from God's point of view, his harvest is so massive, there's enough work for everybody to be entering into his harvest and doing the work of, of uh, partnering with him in his saving grace. God's motivation is just compassion-driven. It's endless compassion. Early in the morning to late at night, God's going out, who can I draw, who can I draw, who can I draw, who can I draw in? Notice how they get in there. They don't present resumes. There's not accolades and, 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 uh, and applications. And they're not, like, they're called. So what we have to see is there's a gracious call into the vineyard. And it's ongoing. This is the nature of our God. Let's move on to the generosity as we unpack the rest of this, sort of this text here. The generosity of God, it's very unexpected. And it's, it's very revealing. Uh, and some of the workers don't like it. Because grace glorifies the giver. Grace is at work here. Justice is also at work. Because he, the, the passage begins with him saying, I will pay you what is right. There's, there's justice at work. But, but justice doesn't negate God's grace. And God's grace doesn't negate his justice. The cross is the perfect intersection of God giving mercy, scandalous mercy and forgiveness for those who don't deserve it, which is all of us, but also justice, whereby, because he is a holy God of love and of wisdom, it is, requires this holiness. And of course, none of us can hit that bar of holiness, and so we must turn to him and trust him. And so in the end, there is justice. Because in the end, God doesn't just wink at the brokenness of the world, at our sin, at our iniquity, at our transgression. The ways in which we have created uh, the, the, the challenging paradox that we live in. This world where we can find beauty, but there's also sort of constant horrors. God is a God of justice, so he's not just going to wink and say everything's fine. Nobody's getting away with anything. This is the divine, perfect judgment of God. Nobody can elevate themselves to the throne of God and say, I've got the solution for the world's political problems. I've got the solution for justice and equity for all. I can solve it. Here's my plan. Nobody can do that. Nobody's that wise. Nobody's that perfect. Nobody can ascend to that throne and exercise a judgment whereby it's true for all people and all cultures and all times forever. Nobody can claim that. And so there is a perfect justice to God and yet this scandalous grace. Both are true and neither negate each other. Starts out in verse 4. I'll give you what's right. We'll talk about his, uh, the justice a little more uh, later as we, as we explore the goodness of the implications of the cross. Justice and mercy. Now, verse 10 and 11, there's some grumbling going on. The workers who were there earlier, they think, I, I, I deserve more. I was here longer. I worked harder. 
I've been a believer since I was a child. I'm serving in the church. I'm giving money. I'm giving time. I'm volunteering. This person's giving the church an hour a month of volunteering. Big whoop. I can do that in my sleep. I, I'm doing this. I'm doing this. I'm doing this. I'm doing this. It's, there's this grumbling going on. They're grumbling at the master of the house, which recalls the grumbling of the children of Israel against the master of the house. There's grumbling going on while the master is providing. Just like Egypt, where there's grumbling going on while the master is providing. And at the crux of all of this grumbling is this comparison. This comparison that's in conflict with God's compassion. This comparison that can't celebrate with compassion. Just self-absorbed comparison. And you might think, well, what about the texts that do talk about different rewards and different returns? Like, there's other texts where Jesus talked about 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. I'm leveling up here. Can't we level up? Well, the point of all of those texts about rewards isn't to get the church motivated for reward and obsessed with reward. When Jesus speaks about rewards of the kingdom, he's not trying to motivate Christian activity. He's, the reward showcases God's generosity. Because when you think about how you get the reward, it's God's grace from beginning to end. He rewards us. You know, first he rescues us by his grace. And then he retunes our desires and our appetites by his grace. And then as we grow into the wisdom of his word and we bend our knee to the obedience of Christ, he begins to realign our minds to his wisdom and our hearts to desire what he wants, to love what he loves and to hate what he hates. And in the end, over time, God is sort of reanimating us. By his indwelling spirit. And then in the end he rewards us. For all of the things. That ultimately he. Birthed and began in us. Grace. Glorifies the giver. The whole purpose of this. Is that we would marvel at God's generosity. And not be fixated on. Our own and everybody else's activity. Now, do we have any participation in this? Is good works important? Are they good? Oh my goodness, they're so important. It's just that God doesn't need our good works. Our neighbor does, to borrow from uh, Martin Luther in the time of the Reformation. Is that work works, good works, is absolutely wonderful. Yes. But we're responding to his calling. Again, the parable, they're going in and they're working in the, the vineyard, but they're responding to a call. So all of our works is a response. Responding to his calling and his filling and his indwelling and his renewing. And the work, of course, is good. If I have to get surgery, I want it done by someone who worked hard. I don't want someone who got into med school by grace. Works, I want, did you do the work? If I got to drive over a bridge, I want an engineer that worked hard. I don't want an engineer that's like, yo, they let me in by, they stamped my drawing of this bridge by grace. No, I want, these are work. And on and on we could sort of go and think about how the, the work and the vocation and the way in which we bring our, our work to our city is important and good. Which it is but not for God's acceptance. Isaiah 63, 4, it talks about the, our works being like filthy rags. Romans 10, chapter 3, again, Paul borrows from Isaiah. Our works, as it comes to being accepted by God, filthy rags. All the religions of the world operate by the premise that you do good things and do good works and the deity accepts you. Christianity is the opposite. No, we do the good works and we go and serve our city with our vocation and our skills and our abilities from freedom. There's no earning. It's all enjoyment. 
We're liberated and free. We're accepted by God. We're in. You know, I had uh, two encounters with the law. This is the scandalous wonder of, of the cross of Christ, this mercy and justice. I'll just give you this example. When I was in my, uh, when I turned 30, that's when I, my friends and my family sent me to racing school and I got to uh, go and spend 12 hours on the track and get my racing experience. And, and uh, I was so thrilled about that, but I didn't own a car. I drove a Jeep. I don't know if you, you don't even need to know anything about racing. You know, you shouldn't go around corners in a Jeep. So, uh, my friend says, I'll let you borrow my car. And then leading up to racing schools the weekend before, and we were, I was with Susan and my sister and her husband, and we were in the car, and I went to pass this truck late at night, out in the middle of nowhere in the country, and I went to pass this truck, and I passed the truck mega aggressively, over-aggressively, didn't need to pass it nearly as fast as I passed it. And as soon as I made my pass, I saw these red and blue lights behind me, the police pulled me over. And it's not my car. And I, and I just got, I don't know what I was doing when I passed the truck on the pass, but it was well above the speed limit. So the police officer pulls me over and he's like, can I see your license and registration? And I'm like, ah, funny thing about that. This isn't my car. It's my friend's car. And he looks at my brother in the lawn and he goes, is that your friend? Funny thing about that. No, it's not. My friend is not here. Uh, this is my friend's car. So this police officer shockingly lets me go. So I experienced grace, but justice was not served. It's not the job of the law to dole out grace. I enjoyed it, but that's not the job of the law. But if the reverse had happened... And I just said, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize how fast I was going. And I was just passing this truck. And I know I could have passed him at, you know, I could have made the pass at 100. But instead, I was just boring this car. I got a little excited. I passed it. I'm at 320. No, I'm just kidding. I passed it faster than I needed to pass it. I'm so sorry. And the guy's like, sorry, the law is the law. Then he would have been doing his job. And I would have had no grace. The cross is the intersection. Because Jesus Christ receives at the cross the guilt of all of our sin. This is the significance of the atonement. It is the justice being served that God's not going to wink at it. He's going to absorb it. But then you and I receive the mercy and we go out into the city from that mercy and we work in his vineyard. His vineyard for us being Kitchener Waterloo. Living from a sense of freedom. And the obedience that we live into is the Christian faith is not just merely, oh yay, my sins are forgiven, period, the end. Grace, period, the end. But rather, my sins are forgiven and I've experienced grace. And so now I'm living into something new. The new humanity. Putting on Christ. Putting on his nature. And living that out in this city of ours. So you see, God sees all of us as equal on the basis of his grace. But we struggle to see others as equal because we tend to be fixated on work. And the longer that we've been followers of Christ, the earlier we tend to put ourselves in this story. But I think if you zoom out eschatologically and historically, you'll see we're not actually anywhere near the beginning of this story. Right? The passage of time, it might mean more maturity, but the passage of time never means you're more worthy. And the whole purpose of this is to see that the, that the worthiness comes by grace. And further to that... We are all latecomers. 
the audience that's hearing this parable for the first time. They are latecomers. Right? Ancient Israel, that was 6 a.m. in the morning. Egypt, 6 a.m. Right? Salvation by God's grace, 6 a.m. And then as history moves on, here we come to the, 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 the point in this parable and then moving on to the, the period of the Gentiles and the tax collectors and the singer, sinners and the Greeks and the Romans. And we're getting later and later in the day. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, he calls himself the least of all the apostles. He says, I'm the least. Why? I am late to the gospel party. I was persecuting the church. He goes on his reasons. He's, he's later. Right? There's only a few seconds left on the apostolic shot clock. And he's in. Apostolic authority, that, that means you walked with Jesus. You saw the resurrected Jesus. You were taught by Jesus. Paul's, Paul's, Paul is right. There's only a few seconds left. When he has apostolic authority, there is no more apostolic authority. All the rest of us who preach, if we're preaching faithfully, nothing I say has any authority unless I am faithfully restating that which does have authority. So Paul's pretty late. You and I... We can't look at the people in the city with a sense of comparison like we're somehow better or more worthy or decide who we think would worship Christ and who wouldn't worship Christ because we keep sort of inflating our, our value and moving us for earlier and earlier in here. No, 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 no. We are at the buzzer. Historically and eschatologically speaking, we are at the buzzer. I love that we've got this dead scoreboard here. It's a great reminder that the gospel is the end of scorekeeping. The end of religious scorekeeping. And Jesus is drawing everybody into just the wonder of God's generosity. Some of your English translations have a phrase right at the end of this text that says, many are called and few are chosen. That's not in the earliest Greek manuscripts. That's why I didn't put it up here. However, it's consistent. Jesus said it elsewhere, so that addition doesn't change the meaning or throw something off. So if you look in your Bible, in your lab, and see that, don't be alarmed. Many are called and few are chosen is a way of saying that by God's grace, he is the one who is doing the external call, and that external call requires an inward response, a sense of inward call. And many reject the external call, but those who respond to that external call, there are the chosen. So in a sense, there's this glorious mystery between, and harmony between God's sovereignty and human agency. Both are happening. From our point of view, the doorway says, respond to the call, and then we do by grace, and we turn around, and it says, welcome to the chosen, and both are true. And so... The landowner, landowner does exactly what he promised, but there's no thankfulness, there's no rejoicing, there's complaining. And this is significant for us to consider. We ought to be marveling at God's grace and not spurning God's grace. When God does a beautiful thing in the lives of someone sitting in the chairs next to you, may we be able to celebrate with their goodness and God's grace and not get immediately into comparison. Well, I don't understand why this thing is happening in their life. What about my life? What about what I have done? How do I celebrate Jesus goes on in verse 15 to say, or is the reason that you can't celebrate because you're envious? The Greek is uh, poneiros, which means uh, the eye is evil, the lens. You're going through life with a particular 
shade of sunglasses on and you see everything through that particular lens. And Jesus goes, there's something wrong with that. It recalls teachings that he did earlier in Matthew when he says, if the eye is, ba- if the eye is dark, the whole body is going to be full of darkness. The perspective. And so when we zoom out on all of th- this entire parable, we realize that, that all of this grace is, is inviting the, those disciples to really marvel at what just happened, which was last week's sermon. The rich ruler, hey, what do I have to do to be saved? I've done everything. And Jesus says, well, no, actually you haven't. You know, worship God alone and sell your stuff. And he doesn't want to do it and he leaves. And after he leaves, Peter says, hey, wait a minute, we left everything. What about us? And here's the response. In a sense, Matthew puts this account after, go, well, yeah, well, what is the reward? Well, the reward is this glorious renewal. But also the disciples are being taught something. Hey, wait a second. There's some people who are going to come into this after us, and they're going to get the same reward, the same glorious reward. What is this going to mean? It's adjusting the expectations to realize the generosity of the Father goes beyond what we can understand. It goes for generations. It's going to go on for millennia. There's going to be lots of harvest after the disciples. There's going to be like this small little church in a basketball court downtown Kitchener. And God's going to just keep on doing saving work all the time in all the cities across the world. The first will be last. And the last will be first. The essence of God's grace. Blessing according to his great pleasure and not according to what we deserve. We don't want God to reward us according to our works. Because when we say that, we're thinking about all of our best works. What about your lousy works? Oof. We don't want to be rewarded according to our works. That's lunacy. We must rest and marvel in the goodness of God's grace. Quite often when I'm um, speaking at... You know, events on campus with university students or having coffee with people. One of the most asked questions is always that people look out the window and go, what is going on with the suffering in the world? And why, if this God is good and wonderful and gracious, and why is, why is he not just, not just wrapping this whole thing up or intervening? Or like, it, it is a chronic question. And I am not qualified to answer that question because I'm not God. So the easy out is for me to just say, I don't know, live in mystery. However, that's not satisfying. And I do think that when we sit back and look at what God is doing through Scripture, it does teach us something about suffering. And I think that this parable about God's care for the harvest going at 6 and 9 and 12 and 5 teaches us that God is interested in continually doing a saving work. He is saving people you and I would not save. He is drawing people to grace because he has more patience than we have. We are impatient. We look at the world and we say, wrap it up. Things are, things are horrible and continually horrible. Every generation that has ever lived has said that. But God, in his sovereignty, has seems to have chosen in his patience. He is going to continue to call latecomers. He's just going to keep doing his gracious, saving work in calling latecomers. And so, may God deliver us from our paradigms of comparison. Otherwise, the way that we relate to the harvest is going to be severely hampered by our superiority complex of comparison. There are people here in our city who God wants to welcome in. He's always been interested and cared deeply about great cities. And this is a great city. It goes back, even his heart, as we consider in the book of Jonah, at the end of Jonah, where God refers to Nineveh as a great city. In other words, the city in which he has tremendous compassion. In Babylon, when they were pulled into the exile of Babylon, God says to them, seek the good 
of the city. There are people here in this city he wants to welcome in. He's going to welcome them in by grace, of course, but he will do this with us, through us, his church, laboring in his field. But may God do a deep work in us, church, or we will not be bold to speak words of gospel if we're curved in on ourselves in fear or superiority or comparison. The last will be first and the first will be last. Grace glorifies the giver. Let's pray.